There's a 5,000-year-old pyramid that just popped up yesterday. And Bill's had yet another interrupted date. It's time to look at the pyramid at the end of the world. Plus, an interview with Thin Ice writer Sarah Dollard and a visit to the Department of Received Fan Wisdom. It's May 30th, and it's This Week in Time Travel. Hey, everybody. So we have both Chip and Rachel on with us today for this week in time travel. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. So there's obviously a lot of news this week. But the thing I'm most excited about is Rachel Talalay is sticking around. She's going to direct the Christmas special, too. And I am so excited. Talk about your go to director. Yeah. She's going to be directing their series finale and the Christmas special. Like, Moffat and Capaldi are getting the best possible send-off that they could have. I'm just biased because, you know, she's one of my favorite Rachels. <laughs> hey, Rachel bias is a very real and obviously good thing to have. I, I, I accept my Rachel bias and I embrace it. Uh, yeah, she's she is she's really become the go to yeah. director the way that Graham Harper was in the first couple of uh, years worth of uh, Russell T. Davis's stuff. She's she's just gold. And Moffat just seems to absolutely trust her. And with good, good reason. She does so much with such a limited budget. Yeah, if you can pull off the stellar series finales that they've had the last two seasons, then absolutely give her this series finale, give her the Christmas special, give her the Christmas special, give her anything that she wants. So for those of us who are attending Gallifrey One next year, we also got some exciting news this week. Gallifrey One announced their first block of guests for 2018, and they are, deep breath, Sylvester McCoy, Sophie Aldred, Camille Kaduri, Noel Clark, Fraser Hines, Terry Malloy, Lisa Bowerman, Sarah Dollar, Jamie Matheson, Peter Harness, Rachel Talalay, Lawrence Goh, Wayne Yip, Philip Martin, Chris, oh, I'm really going to mispronounce this, I'm so sorry, Achilles, John Davey, Simon Fraser, George Mann, Kevin Scott, Matt Fitton, and of course, Paul Cornell, Tony Lee, Christopher Jones, Richard Dinnick, Dave Howe, and Sansone and Jason Hay Ellery will also be there. So many people. That's a hell of a list. It is a hell of a list. And uh, we've got a good mix of classic Who, RTD era hosts. But the behind-the-scenes stuff, the writers and the directors, that's the stuff that excites me the most. Yeah, I personally am excited to see Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred again. Mostly because, so Sylvester McCoy was the doctor that was at Galley the first time I attended, but this time I have now seen all of the Seventh Doctor stories, and so the panels with him and with Sophie will take on a brand new context for me, so I'm I'm thrilled for that opportunity. 
I'm also a Sense8 fan, and Sylvester uh, McCoy was in season two of Sense8, so I'm going to be geeking out on two of my nerd franchises with him there. But I'm obviously super excited. We're going to have uh, Rachel Talalay and Sarah Dollard there, two of the women who are creating Doctor Who and have been so active and involved with the fans. So I'm really excited to see them there. Should be a good time. And Rachel, you had a guest that you were really hoping you could see. Well, so last year at Galley, we were treated to Jamie Hill, who is a behind the scenes guy um, who does some of the um, creature acting. And so he was uh, the mummy in Mummy on the Orient Express. And it was just fascinating hearing about it. And so he showed up again in this week's episode and was featured on the Doctor Who fan show. As a result, um, he played one of the monks. And it was really cool to hear from him and from um, Rachel Denning, yet another amazing Rachel who played Erica, who worked in the lab. And so Rachel was charming. Jamie was a wealth of information. And he... uh, uh, revealed that he will be playing a Mondasian Cyberman and an Ice Warrior later in the series. So that's pretty cool. And then, lo and behold, in the uh, later segment of the Doctor Who fan show, a tweet of Alyssa's was featured. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was a uh, very, very silly Twitter discussion. They had just released the preview for Extremis, and we saw uh, that Missy was likely going to be the person in the vault. And her eyeshadow is amazing. Like, how do you have that killer eyeshadow when you are trapped in a vault for some unknown period of time? So I was going down (laughs) crazy fan theories of like, what, does the doctor go to Mac for her and pick up her favorite brand of eyeshadow? Does she like get a birch box delivered outside the vault so she can keep trying out some incredible eyeshadow? Uh, Then our friend Rachel Stott came in and drew a quick little sketch of the 12th Doctor putting eyeshadow on Missy for her. Uh, And both of those got featured on the fan show. So that was a fun, uh, silly little conversation. It was fun to get some recognition for that. It was really funny. Rachel Stott is a global treasure, I'm just saying. This is true. So unfortunately, we have a little bit of uh, sad news as well. The BBC Store, which launched in November 2015 for download sales and where Power of the Daleks debuted, uh, is getting shut down. BBC Worldwide is cutting them off. They said they couldn't compete with streaming. Uh, So sad as that is, it's not terribly uh, surprising. So UK fans who bought episodes can get refunds after November. Uh, It sounds like they're going to do Amazon video vouchers or cash. So uh, remember that if you want to keep an episode, grab the DVD. Yeah, that that came as kind of a shock uh, to customers who have actually bought Doctor Who episodes or other things uh, like that. You could actually buy them on the iPlayer. This was a UK-only thing, by the way. It it kind of sucks that you've only got so many places that you can get uh, Classic Who these days. The DVDs going out of print. You're at the mercy of the streaming uh, providers like Amazon or Netflix to get your Doctor Who if they even choose to provide it. So it, it, it kind of 
doesn't make sense, but it's kind of inevitable that um, you want to be able to buy your stuff directly from the BBC and they're just not offering it anymore. Finally, in news, uh, the Shanghai Media Group Pictures has a deal for new Doctor Who, Torchwood, Sarah Jane Adventures, and Class, including a first look option for series 12 to 15. So on the one hand, this definitely seems like your standard business transaction of if the show should go on for that long, then they would get uh, their first look option. But that does seem to indicate that someone's planning for Doctor Who for many years to come. So that's exciting. I don't think they would have made this deal if they were expecting to kill Doctor Who right after Chibnall's first season. Uh, that's for sure. It's not a guarantee. It's not a promise. You know, the 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 BBC may get torpedoed by a new conservative government or something like that. But uh, But that is a good sign. I'm assuming the inclusion of Sarah Jane Adventures in class is just because it's part of the properties and Mm -hmm. it's like they had to buy all of it. Probably. They probably had to buy everything collectively, especially if uh, I don't know the exact terms of the deal. But if there's distribution involved uh, for previous episodes, they may have wanted to be the sole distributor of uh, all of the Doctor Who related properties and franchises um, in that that media market. So uh, because you don't want that going on five different places. As we currently know, one company would probably prefer to have everything together and have everyone sign up for their streaming service, download service, sales service, etc. It's also a sign of how important it is that you know, BBC Worldwide gets a lot of money from uh, BBC America to put on Doctor Who these days. Even that first season uh, of the reboot uh, was a co-production with the, the Canadian broadcasting company. They can't do it all just by themselves anymore, and China's a huge market. I have no sense of how popular Doctor Who is or can be in China, but that's... Uh, all of a sudden, they're going to be getting lots of money from that country to help them make new Doctor Who. And that can only be a good thing. Absolutely. So finally, on the day that we are recording, it is Pearl Mackey's birthday. So happy Yay. birthday, Pearl Mackey. Thank you for bringing us the wonderful, amazing Bill Potts. And we hope you had an amazing day. Yeah. <laughs> And thank you, thank you for being so amazing on social media too. We've never had a, we've never had a uh, Doctor Who actor quite so active while they're in the role, and it's been lovely. It has. It really has been wonderful to see her interacting with fans and sharing fan art and thanking people. Uh, that's just been uh, a wonderful addition to all the wonderful things she provides us on the show. Mm hmm. Uh, being an activist, too. Uh, she's she's yes. not exactly shying away from uh, the controversies of the day. Not at all. So that wraps us up for the news for last week in time travel. Uh, just a moment. We'll be back to talk about the pyramid at the end of the world. Well, that was uh, definitely part two of three, wasn't it, y'all? Definitely was a bit of an awkward middle child. (laughs) Sometimes Um, the awkward middle child is the best, like Empire Strikes Back, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. 
I don't think it was. I don't think that this was a bad episode. I actually tried to take a first run at it uh, not long after it aired. I was on the Incomparable Network's uh, Flashcast uh, TV episode two fifty seven, and it was almost like uh, Jason Snell and I were talking our way through this thing that we had just watched, trying to make sure what we thought of it. Uh, I think Jason came out a little more in favor of it than I was. That. I didn't hate this episode, but there were things about it that just didn't hang together for me. I'm not so sure I hate this episode, but there was really nothing in it that worked for me. I was already a little bit side-eyeing the monk's arc. Uh, It was... There were some interesting things to it, but overall, I wasn't feeling the story very much. And unfortunately, this episode just didn't really come together for me. Uh, And... There were a few small moments in this episode that I liked. You know, I liked Bill calling out our orange president. I <laughs> liked that uh, there was uh, an actor, Rachel Denning, um, a little person who was just your everyday person. There wasn't anything uh she was given a role that would have been given to any other actor. That was yeah, good. Yeah, it was to not see. mentioned at all, which was not really, at all. Yeah. But it was really overshadowed by a lot of the not great moments uh, in this episode. Uh, the language about consent in this episode really sort of squicked me out. Uh, and I am not a fan of the running joke that Bill's dates are getting interrupted in increasingly worse ways. Uh, what do you think, Rachel? You know, I'm I'm not as bothered by the date interrupting thing as some others are. Um, you know, I I think it's it's a supposed to be a running joke. I don't know that it's a necessarily funny or a successful joke, but I'm not as bothered by it. I, I think it's just sort of there, and it and it kind of falls flat for me uh, as a joke. Um, I think one of the good things about it is that I feel like we got to another level with Bill in this episode and that, you know, she's been very kind of streetwise, you know, and we've sort of been shown that she's partially raised herself. She's been through foster care. She's very strong willed. She's very independent. But in this episode, it takes a turn where she realizes that she does, in fact, you know, have an emotional attachment to the doctor and clearly would do anything for him and is kind of willing to put the fate of the earth on the line to give him his sight back. And I think, I think that was an important kind of level to show for her that we hadn't seen before. To clarify on the interrupting date, like I know that they're not really intending that to be anything other than a very Doctor Who style event of this date keeps getting interrupted because people of increasingly more prominent statures keep walking in as a result of Bill's friendship with the doctor. Like I see very much where they're trying to go with it. I think the thing that bothered me was it's two women of color trying to be on a date, armed guards come in and hold them at gunpoint so that they can meet the secretary general. It just, that was, 
that played very poorly to me, given, you know, current political climates. Like, I see where they were trying to go with it. I just think it's a sort of... Maybe thoughtlessness? There's definitely thoughtlessness, and I think there's a lack of understanding of how that moment will read to queer people of color and to other queer people who face that sort of... That's that's not entirely out of the realm of things that could be faced by queer people of color trying to go on dates. You know, it's it doesn't play well in the current context. Do you think it maybe yeah. played better in the UK than it does here? That's a perspective that I just lack. I don't know. I definitely know more Americans were commenting on it um, than people in the UK. Um, but it's... You know, it it is very context dependent. You know, everyone is going to react to it based off of the situations they see in their life. I'm not trying to say that, you know, they were aiming for anything with that scene, but I think it does show a lack of uh, awareness of what different communities face um, and particular sensitivities. Uh, And it's not... It's not too hard to search for it. I mean, I think anybody uh, who's paying a little bit of attention to the world will know that police violence uh, and uh, violence against queer communities and violence uh, against women are very much at the forefront of our conversations right now. Um, I, I think it shows a lack of awareness that for a lot of people, this wouldn't be seen as funny. This would be seen as sort of a disturbing reminder of the type of harassment that queer people of color, women of color, people of color would face on a more regular basis. Yeah, I I can definitely see that. I think uh, one of the other things that I didn't buy about this episode is that one of the kind of plot devices that they use, which Doctor Who has used before, as does, um, you know, a lot of other shows, but where the audience knows what's happening, but the characters do not. And that based on the way the story was told with the going back and forth between the pyramid story and the scientists in the lab story, we knew for a fact that um, something was going to happen in this lab to trigger some horrible event. We just knew it from get-go with the glasses being broken. We're like, who is this person? Her glasses being broken are going to come into play somewhere. The second she walks into a lab, you're like, oh, okay. You know what what the kind of story down the road is going to be. And I I just feel like that cut the tension of the World War III story so much. Like, I just couldn't feel any tension there. Because you knew it was a red herring. Exactly. I think, you know, as they're going through all the things that could kill people off, you're just sitting there and you're not even thinking about what are all the things that I'm worried about today that could be catastrophic for our world. You're looking at that lab and going, it's right there. It's right there. It's literally right over there. Yeah. (laughs) And as as a side note... I don't care how hungover a scientist is. He's not going to, without a, you know, a helmet on his hazmat suit, grab a bunch of toxic dirt and run out of a room that's not secure. Right. Yeah. I, right. I was just, I, I just, that kind of blew it for me too. And also a lab 
under quarantine would regularly expel the atmosphere of the lab into the regular atmosphere. Like, that's the thing that made me sort of raise my eyebrow and go, uh, mm -mm, no, that would never happen under any containment procedures. Uh, also, the whole, the doctor can just magically put all of the world's classified files on the internet available for Google. Just, that was another eyebrow raise moment of, this is very, very convenient. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of that in this episode, um, all the way up to the very end when the monks are able to restore the doctor's sight with absolutely no mechanism for it whatsoever. They just they just can. Uh, and that whole moment where the doctor is trapped because he's blind and he can't see like. My roommate was watching this with me, and she's not normally the loud television watcher. I'm normally the loud television watcher. She sat bolt upright and just started smacking the couch and going, you can fix this with FaceTime. Like, of all of the mechanisms that have been set up in the past couple of episodes for the doctor <laughs> to be able to see and interact with his environment, are you telling me the sonic sunglasses cannot send an image of the lock to uh, Bill, who is talking to the doctor from an iPhone? <laughs> yeah 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 i mean yeah well and and it felt like such a letdown with you know you knew this whole he can't read thing was gonna come into play at some point and to have it be that was a little disappointing well doctor who takes advantage of narrative shorthand all the time uh whether it's the waving of the sonic screwdriver to uh re to solve one issue you know Stephen Moffat is the kind of writer who doesn't spend a lot of time on getting from point A to point B if there's just the opportunity for hand-waving. Most of the time, I think his instincts are fairly good about that, but this one, these things just sort of piled onto each other time after time after time after time. And I just felt like, you know, we are doing our best to get from extremists to the lie of the land, things have to happen in this one. By God, we're just going to get there. Yeah, it def it definitely felt a little workhorsey of, you know, there was a lot of hand-waving, there was a lot of convenient excuses, and we're just, we're, we're trying to push through these plot points. So it, it's, I don't, it's one of the reasons I don't actively dislike this episode, but there's just nothing in it that works for me. The fear is temporary, love is slavery line was a little yeah. like eyebrow raising, especially having that come from the doctor and affirmed by the doctor. Especially because all the language that follows about love and consent really was disturbing to me. And there's been a lot of conversation uh, about this. You know, I, I want to acknowledge that this language does mostly come from the monks, who are the bad guys and the villains and that they can uh, have a warped perception of those and not necessarily be affirmed because it's, you know, the bad guys. But the way that they use love and consent is not simply a bad opinion. It is operationalized. They literally cannot do whatever it is they are about to do to the human race unless they have consent that is, by their definition, pure, that relies on love and I was not a fan of the way that final moment worked out with Bill, the doctor, and the monks because 
of all of the people that offered their consent to the aliens, hers is the most forced and manipulated. She says right afterwards that she wants the doctor to undo what she is about to do in handing over her planet to the monks. So she's not really consenting to their control. And her feelings are not love for the monks. She does not want them to take over her planet because she loves them. She's acting out of concern for the doctor. And also, she's under threat. The monks have the ability to save the doctor, and they won't unless she gives them something. That's effectively a threat. So she is being threatened, her love is being manipulated, and her consent isn't real. But by the way the monks are operating, hers is considered the most pure consent, and that's how they take over the world. So that, to me, was just not... That felt very icky watching that. Yeah. Consent is a big deal right now. It's a big real world deal. Uh, we are having so many conversations about it, whether you're talking about uh, convention, convention culture, um, you know, the, the kinds of games that the monks are playing are played out in human relationships all the time. And, you know, in the last few years, we've started having signs popping up at conventions that cosplay is not consent, things like that. Uh, it's a hot button word. It's almost a triggering word to be using kind of casually in this episode. And I, I also share your observation, Alyssa, that, you know, the monks are the bad guys. This is clearly not genuine consent. It's clearly manipulation. I think everybody who watches the episode is supposed to get that. But it is still kind of uncomfortable for me to watch. I know it wasn't uncomfortable for all viewers. Um, you know, we've been we've been part of conversations where people have said, well, th that's the point. Um, there are some things about some episodes that are going to be more problematic or icky for us uh, than for other people. And it's uh, sometimes it's sometimes it's hard to deal with. Yeah, I think that just the dichotomy between looking at consent from a in the love sense versus the power and rule sense that they were kind of comparing it. It was really about vulnerability in general you know, vulnerability of a people to a master um, or a leader, vulnerability that you display when you fall in love with someone or something, um, and that they were trying to circle around that, that being vulnerable is, is one of the most um, emotional things that you can do and, like, opening yourself up that way is one of the riskiest things you can do. So it means the most, but I don't think that they got it exactly how it needed to be without it feeling a little icky. Yep. I would agree with that. It's not ill-intentioned. It's not ill-intentioned by on the part of any of the creators or anything like that. It just doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. I will say though, like from a, a, good perspective of this episode i thought the special effects were great uh, i thought the you know the people melting away from the monks looked amazing um i thought the pyramid looked great 
from all different angles. I thought the directing was really good in terms of setting the different tone between the scenes in the lab and the scenes at the pyramid. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? With the exception of the bomber and the submarine stuff, which was kind of janky, I would agree with you. Um, I thought that it, I thought that it was it was well paced. I thought that if you didn't just sort of sit there paying attention to some of the issues that we've been talking about so far, it moved along and it, it was fairly entertaining. It was well made Doctor Who. And now we're getting into the next episode, The Lie of the Land, and we're going to have a world in which the monks have always been there. And Bill looks like she's going to be teaming up with Missy to help fight the monks and save the doctor, which should be really interesting. I've got pretty high hopes for this one, actually. I I think there may be even some stuff in it that helps redeem some of the concerns that we've had. I kind of want to have somebody stand up and say in the next episode, this wasn't consent, you know? Um, Could happen. Could very well happen. It could happen. I kind of, I hate, I hate feeling like I need something to be told rather than shown, but I kind of want that to be told. I want that to be made explicit. But I'm, I'm getting a bit of a, I'm getting a bit of a, Martha's Year in the Wilderness vibe from yes, this trailer. Yes, I was thinking very much Sound of Drums when I saw that trailer. Except like the inverse, instead of fighting against the master, she's going to have to fight another master manipulator species that has changed the whole course of history with the master. So yeah. that's going to be a really interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I thought for half a second watching that trailer that maybe this is where John Sim might show up, but just because of those correlations there, but I don't know if Missy's there, maybe not, but Oh, they can't bring John Sim back this season and not give us a scene with Michelle Gomez and John Sim together. Maybe oh. that happens this episode, maybe we don't get it for a while, but like that's got to happen. Yeah. I think what's going to happen is his image is going to show up on a view screen somewhere and he's going to be mouthing doctor, doctor. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Callbacks. It could happen. I, I didn't hate this episode and I'm sort of waffling back and forth on whether this or Knock Knock is my least favorite of the season thus far. But just because it's my least favorite, uh, call ahead to a future segment of this podcast. Just because it was like least favorite doesn't mean that I hated it. It's just that uh, things didn't work. But I think that there are some interesting things in position for next week's episode to bring it home. Absolutely. I'll be looking forward to seeing how this all gets wrapped up. Or does it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> this week on The Incomparable Network. A two-part look at The Godfather Part 2 begins on The Incomparable. Chip and his wife Shannon both competed in yet another game defining words that shouldn't exist but do in low definition. And Tim Goodman and Jason Snell talk Master of None and Twin Peaks in the TV talk machine. All of this and more is at theincomparable.com. 
She's broken our hearts and made us cheer with joy, and she's one-sixth of all the women to ever write for Doctor Who. The Gallifrey One mobile website accidentally refers to her just as The Australian. We're chatting today with the writer of Face the Raven and Thin Ice, Sarah Dollard. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming on. Hello, thank you. That Australian thing really cracks me up and amused many people on Twitter the other day. (laughs) I think that is my my favorite just short, brief description of you. She's just the Australian. Yeah, I like it. Between you and Janet Fielding, you're going to have to have a, a battle for the most Australian in the Doctor Who universe. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm like the second Australian then. That's all right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to go into battle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, she is. She's quite intimidating. Uh, So, Sarah, I loved Thin Ice. I thought that your latest episode for this season uh, was absolutely incredible. So I just wanted to say that before we got started. Thanks so much. So thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. So you were drafting this episode before you've ever seen Bill on screen. And I'm not entirely sure of the timing, but maybe even before Pearl Mackey had been cast. So oh, yeah, well before. So you've yeah. written this episode that's so crucial to the development of their relationship. What was the process like for creating this when you know nothing about who this new companion is uh, and what they're going to be like on screen? Well, it- it, it was sort of going in blind in a lot of ways. Uh, I didn't even know that the companion would be a woman of colour. Um, so it was, you know, there was huge, huge changes that came about as as time went on, as the process went on. So really when I set out, it was, the brief was new companion and a new start for the show um, so that, people can kids can kids or adults alike can start with this series and everything is a, a first for them as well as a first for the companion um so with clara you know she came in and she immediately had her shit together she uh wasn't really shocked by anything um she she rolled with the punches she was cooler than the doctor <laughs> um but with this time with the, this time around it was a companion for whom um, not only was everything new, but everything was shocking uh, and scary things were properly scary and, um, you know, exciting things were exciting and she was going to be uh, a bit nerdy as well. So she would nerd out about stuff and really enjoy it. So I went in armed with all of that when told that I would be doing the first historical. So um, everything I thought about for the episode was thinking, would this be cool through the eyes of this new companion? So it's really interesting that you didn't even know the new companion would be a woman of color because that becomes a really central part of uh, Thin Ice, the whole approach to race in Doctor Who and particularly how race is going to be viewed uh, at this time. Uh, When did that become a major part of your drafting process? Yeah, well, um, it um, immediately was important to me, and actually, I had a sort of a bit of a uh, a crisis when I found out that she was a woman of color because I instantly went, "Well, I don't know if I want to do this historical anymore," um, because I just for for a while, or immediately anyway, I would, I just thought, "How do you? Why would a companion who is a woman of color 
choose to go back in time because the way that I had drafted the story at, up until that point was that they got back from the happenings in Smile in episode two and the doctor was like, right, that was, you know, that was a total balls up. Uh, so you can choose somewhere else that we, we could go um, because at that point um, – it was they were kind of just having it um that was like we'll give you i'll give you one adventure um and then that's it and so the second adventure was coming about by him saying okay that went really wrong you can have another one where do you want to go this time and she was going to choose to go to the past so i sort of came in and went well even if i do this if if i do a historical that has to change she's not no woman of color is going to choose to go back to 1814 in london um and the and Stephen came up with the idea that well why don't we make it that it's you know that something goes wrong that the the TARDIS takes them takes them there they don't choose to go there, um, and I already had the idea for the I already had an elephant in my the elephant in my episode um, so <laughs> I think in that meeting it was like what if we just if we have the TARDIS mess it up at the end of Frank's episode. Um, and we, and I was like, damn it, he's going to take my elephant away from me. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was like, yeah, that's a very good idea. And that solves our problems. Fine. He can have my elephant. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a joint elephant, you know, you, you both get the elephant a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And actually, I, I just think it's very, very cool that it started in the previous episode. Um, it's a very Hartnell type of uh, ending. A lot of people were saying. This yes, is really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, somebody with like, you know, in 2.5 seconds had already made like mocked up the end of smile, um, with like the Hartnell ending of like next time. Um, which yes, is great. That was... <laughs> um, yeah, but to sort of, to finish answering your question in other ways that, that thinking about Bill as a woman of color changed things was of course that there had to be a conversation before she stepped out that, um, as well as the normal trepidation of, uh, of a new companion uh, stepping out into the past for the first time and all the questions that might bring up. She was also having the, the trepidation of knowing or imagining what, what might happen to her as, as a person with dark skin in that time. So uh, again, there was a conversation in that first meeting about what that might mean. Uh, it was sort of stressed upon me. I think because, you know, I take all this stuff very seriously, it was stressed upon me that uh, I, I shouldn't make a meal of it, you know, like that it, it still needs to be fun. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, so it was finding a way to um, be respectful of Bill and Bill's concerns without bogging things, weighing things down and getting bog, bogged down in it. So hopefully I achieved that balance. So I think that moment worked very well. Uh, you also are making that sort of a part of your continuing criticism throughout the episode. Uh, you have that moment where the doctor says, history is a whitewash. And you're taking a pretty critical look at the movie and television industry's overwhelmingly white interpretation of the past. What inspired you to sort of draw that critique out uh, through the episode? And how did that moment come about? Um, well, I think it was really important to have it through the episode that it wasn't just, uh, you know, like an offhand reference at the start and then it's like, oh, we're fine now. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, like it, it didn't want it to just be a case of uh, paying lip service and the doctor supports her and then off we go and, you know, we forget all about it. Um, so it, 
it was always going to be for me to try and find a way to keep it alive without weighing it down, without weighing the episode down. Um, I think those lines about the, about, I guess the casting of, um, whether about whether world looking white or not came out of a discussion in that very first meeting. Once we knew that Bill was black, which was, um, uh, somebody saying, well, of course, Bill's going to look around and see that it's not white because our extras background casting won't be all white. So it won't, when she looks around, it's not going to look like um, every other historical period drama that you see on British television. So, you know, that's going to be a part of it. So that's where those lines came from um, was the fact that, our show was going to look different to most other shows. Which I think was uh, a really wonderful touch to see that and acknowledge it as historical reality, really, for Mm. London. Uh, One of my favorite moments in this episode was the doctor's speech about how we measure human progress. The thing that struck me most was that I can imagine a few prominent figures today who might need that speech. Did you write that to sort of respond to both the politics of the Industrial Revolution and, in a way, our politics today? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the politics from today can't help but influence your writing. Um, And I was writing it during the Republican primaries, so, and I'm pretty obsessed with US politics, so all of that was... um, we know was going through my head every day um, and every night as I tried to sleep. So, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, it, it was, um, and of course it's about the politics of the time as well. And uh, it's, you know, looking at um, the, unfortunately looking at the Tory politics of today in the UK uh, looks unfortunately very like, some of the politics of that time. Um, so in thinking, it wasn't like I set out to say this is going to be a speech to uh, uh, today's Tories and to um, to the to the men running for um, to be the Republican candidate. It was it, I was writing it very specifically in character in the characters in my episode. But as soon as I started to think about what what would come out of that. Um, out of those mo- those moments, you can't turn off the other things you're thinking about. So, um, I guess all of my frustration, um, <laughs> one one thing bled bled into another. And that brings us to the big controversial moment of the episode: the punch. Uh, <laughs> you said on the Doctor Is In podcast that Stephen Moffat really encouraged you to lean into the Doctor's anger in that moment, and thank goodness mm. he did because. It that moment really worked. I'm so glad he was supportive of it. Have you been surprised by the way that people have reacted to that moment? Yeah, I was. I was really um, pleasantly surprised, uh, to be honest, because I guess I thought and feared that there might be a little bit more of a negative response as well as a positive response. Um, and that that was probably me not having a fa- enough faith in um, in the in the Who fan base, to be honest. Uh, but I couldn't help but say when uh, Richard Spencer was punched, um, I, you know, just after, um, 
was that oh, was that the inauguration? That that it was happened? at Donald Trump's inauguration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So when that was happening, first of all, I was like, oh, that's awesome. And second of all, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> second of all, I was like, oh god, people are going to think that's where I got it from. That I'm sort of paying homage to that moment. Um, and then, of course, I was sort of like looking at um, the response to that moment and how much it divided people. And I thought, oh, okay, that's. I was already or, already slightly thinking, of course, that's going to divide. Um, my scene was going to divide people because everyone's got strong opinions about whether the doctor can be violent or not. But now we've also got this, you know, uh, inescapable um, thing laid on top of it, which is where there's already a raging debate about whether it's all right to, to punch a Nazi or not, um, to punch a fascist or not. Uh, but everybody was like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, this is why I love Doctor Who fandom. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is really interesting the, where you fall on that line of uh, when the doctor thinks uh, violence may be an appropriate response to that. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's everything that I sort of thought about when Stephen sort of encouraged me to go with the doctor's anger. Um, it, uh, because I'm one of those people who who gets quite uncomfortable when the doctor is violent, um, and have had many arguments on that front myself. Um, so, in thinking about it and how I made peace with it, is just how uh, how emotion and emotional and how volatile uh, and how impulsive the twelfth doctor is. Um, so he wouldn't punch him and then want to punch him again and, and kick him around a bit. And he might in the next scene, he wouldn't feel the need to punch him again. It's because he did it in that moment. And then two seconds later, he's like, that's very unlike me. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, and, and would probably deny having lost control of his emotions, you know, within five minutes. Um, absolutely. so that's, that's how it made sense. And I think it, it was, Stephen was absolutely right to push me there. Um, that's what the, that's who 12 is. Yep. So, uh, we just heard that you will be joining us, uh, at Gallifrey one in 2018. So I have to ask, do you have your cosplay picked out yet? I do not yet. I've got some, I've got some wriggle room. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like, yeah, as you know, because we've discussed it on Twitter, I'm kind of torn between, um, whether or not, uh, just, uh, how, how, how wanky it is to dress as something from your own episode. Uh, <laughs> So at the moment, I'm I'm going to put that uh, that debate aside and hope that there's something in um, in Rona Munro's episode that I instantly go, yes, that's what I'm <laughs> dressing up as. So, <laughs> yes, yeah. I think we're all over the moon excited to see what Rona Munro does for Doctor Who. I saw your reaction in uh, the after show where you were, I think, <laughs> fangirling with the best of us about seeing Rona Munro back. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> uh, I did say to them, I did say to them, how creepy would it be if I came around when you talked to her for the next fan show? Because um, <laughs> I, I don't live far from where they record the fan show. So I was like, just tell me like how creepy that is on a scale from one to ten for me to drop around um, on that day. Um, <laughs> Sarah Dollard, ultimate fangirl, after show creeper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um yeah i'm really looking forward to that and i don't know anything about the episode um so i'm, I'm very excited to see see what she's done and i guess if there isn't an immediate um cosplay choice from that episode 
then I could just uh, come as something from survival as an ode to her anyway. Well, I would love to see that. I think that would be a totally great homage to her. But together, you and Rona Monroe are a third of all of the women who have ever written for Doctor Who. Um, but it's cool to see you both returning and getting an opportunity uh, to write new episodes this season. Uh, were you excited to be asked back and to be in the same season with her? Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, when I was asked back, there was like the war, the kind of warring feelings of that's really exciting. I'm really honored few but also you know the the most of the reaction to face the raven was positive so part of me was like maybe i should just leave it there like it went well um i didn't get the blowback that say i know female writers have had in the past and maybe i should count myself lucky and and leave it at that um but ultimately the excitement won out and the, um, I guess too, the feeling that there should, that I, I feel very strongly that there should be more, more women writing for the show and more women behind the camera in other departments. So it would be pretty lame uh, and hypocritical of me to say no to that opportunity. Uh, but as to finding out that I was in the same season as Rona, that was just, there was no hesitancy there. That was just, Stoic, so excited about it. <laughs> so, so honored and so excited. Well, I, for one, uh, am very glad that we got you back uh, for Series 10. Uh, and I know lots of things will be shaking up when uh, Chibnall takes over. Uh, but fingers crossed uh, that we see more incredible work from you soon. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Cheers. Thanks, Lisa. Some of our friends were having a conversation on Twitter the other day when Shannon Dohar said something to the effect of the second Doctor was not her favorite and was, in fact, her least favorite. To which Radio Free Scarrow Stephen Shapansky replied, Excuse me, I'm from the Department of Received Fan Wisdom. Is there a problem? And so Stephen gave me an idea, and we have a segment on This Week in Time Travel called The Department of Received Fan Wisdom. With us is Shannon Dohar. Hello, hello. And playing the role of the historian in this little story, one Graham Burke. Hello. Graham and Shannon are both from the Reality Bomb podcast, and because Graham is part of the Reality Bomb podcast, I must disclaim that the Department of Received Fan Wisdom will never, ever take as its subject one episode that may be unjustly maligned because Graham would sue me into oblivion. It is true. It's entirely fair. Shannon, you said that you're not a big fan of the second Doctor, and you kind of expected people to come at you for that. I did. He's really not my guy. Um, I don't dislike him, which is, I think, an important thing to note and definitely uh, is uh, is something that I always include because of the Department of Received Fan Wisdom. Yeah, I'm very aware of how beloved he is. And it's not that I hate him. He doesn't bother me. I just don't have any attachment to him whatsoever. He tends to annoy me. I like his stories. I like his companions. The second Doctor, I could really take or leave him. So, Graham, 
give us a little perspective here. Why is Troughton so beloved in fandom? I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, I think in many respects, Patrick Troughton was the Peter Capaldi of his day. He was a heavyweight character actor who had been in just about everything and sort of ran the gamut from light comedy to heavy dramatic roles to to horror films to to Hammer to just about any kind of British genre you, you, you can think of. He had done it. So I think to have someone of that kind of stature sort of taking on a part like the Doctor for three years was kind of uh, an unusual move on Troughton's part because he wasn't an actor who tended to uh, to do a lot of series work, and I think uh, and I and I think it was that kind of capturing lightning in a bottle that you kind of have. I think the other thing that fandom has gravitated towards is what I would call um, he he's sort of influential um, insofar as I think other doctors have in some ways emulated his performance. So Peter Davison has emulated his performance a, a bit. Sylvester McCoy a very little. Uh, Matt Smith very definitely uh, cited him as an influence even. So even Capaldi himself has a tiny touch here and there. But, uh, but you know, so I think, I think it's that combination of being influential. And I think it's also just being a, a highly regarded character actor. I also think the other thing he, he Patrick Trouton did was he sort of, he was the first, what we now call regenerative of the Doctor. So he sort of proved that you could change the narrative, as it were, about the Doctor. You know, the, the Doctor is now a completely different character. And I think I think that sort of shock of the new, I think, also inf influenced uh, fandom's uh, appraisal of him as a, as a Doctor. So, Shannon, that sounds like the received fan wisdom. It, does any of it resonate with you? One tiny bit. I mean, I think that he's... He, listen, his influence is felt throughout the 50 some odd years of Doctor Who history. But I would say that while all of those uh, actors that, that Graham very graciously listed off who have played the Doctor and who have kind of taken from Patrick Troughton's interpretation, the thing that they brought that he doesn't really have for me is a lot of charm and a lot of warmth <laughs> and a feeling of compassion and generally knowing what he's doing. <laughs> that I think that they pulled out of his interpretation uh, and I would say made a lot more, um, were, were just done a lot better for me by all of those other guys who were inspired by him. So, you know, I respect, I respect what Graham has said and he's definitely right, but yeah, he doesn't do anything for me still. It just, I think others do it better. I'm glad he was there for them to crib from. <laughs> so I think a lot of people's impression of the second Doctor is really formed by how they watched classic Who and how they got introduced to the Doctors. Shannon, how did you get introduced to Troughton's Doctor? And how did you get introduced to him relative to other Doctors? Was he one of the earlier Doctors you saw or one of the later ones? He was right in that kind of sweet spot for me between like six and ten years old when I was just watching every single classic Who episode I could get my PBS hands on as a kid in New England. <laughs> um, so I did watch him as a kid. I always thought that he was really, really dull. He never did anything for me as a kid either. Um, Tom Baker was always my guy in kind of the, you know, very standard American fan in the 80s, 90s. Uh, you know, I played to the stereotype. 
But so when I grew up, I kind of figured, well, maybe I, I didn't like Troughton because of the black and white. And let me kind of go back and revisit, you know, maybe when I was a kid, I just couldn't connect to him because the, the stories were told in a different way. And maybe I was having a hard time with the black and white. Uh, so when I went back to rewatch and discovered that I absolutely adore William Hartnell and was still bored to tears by Patrick Troughton, that kind of took the base right out of that theory. So uh, Received fan wisdom sort of ebbs and flows. And I got the sense that Troughton love really, really exploded when Matt Smith was giving all those early interviews and people didn't know who Matt Smith was going to be and what kind of doctor he, his 11th doctor was going to be. And he was like, David Tennant gave me the Tomb of the Cybermen and suddenly I got Doctor Who. Did Troughton's popularity really jump as a result of that, do you think? I think uh, certainly in, in the modern in the modern uh, era, yes, that's true. I think Troughton was always kind of loom large. Uh, Hartnell was a largely forgotten doctor in many ways um in and it wasn't until i think i think the dvd releases went a long way to sort of uh making hartnell more accessible because the the video restoration made his stories much easier to watch um whereas troughton was a much easier watch for some obviously not all the people here but so i think you know but i think troughton kind of always loomed large uh, to a certain extent i think he sort of has certainly risen in sort of fan esteem i think uh, in the modern era thanks to thanks to uh, Matt Smith's endorsement for certain. Yeah, that was around the time where I was convinced that I must have been missing something. <laughs> was when Matt Smith was talking about taking so much inspiration from Patrick Troughton and, you know, all of the friends that I had in fandom were just singing his praises. And I kind of thought, all right, well, really? Let me try again. Was I missing something? And, you know, try and fail and try and fail. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you say that Hartnell has more warmth and charm for you than Troughton does, because a lot of the received fan wisdom that I received when I was starting to watch Classic Who was that if Hartnell put you off, Troughton was going to be the charmer who would get you into the black and white Classic Who. What is it for you, Shannon, that makes Hartnell more of that engaging figure than Troughton does. Oh, there's just such a lovely twinkle in Hartnell's eye for me that always makes me feel like he knew what he was doing. And his doctor, I should say, knew what he was doing. Um, I never, you know, as foolish and weird and off-putting as the first doctor could be, and he could be all of those things, I never doubt for a minute that he is, that the story is in good hands, that the people around him are in good hands, um, and that, you know, it, we're in for a wild ride. And I think that a lot of people see that in Troughton, which is kind of why I've always really struggled to understand where it comes from. Because for me, the charm is all in Hartnell's eyes. And I don't see that, like, spark that, that so many people see in Troughton. What did you make of The Enemy of the World, which was the great missing Troughton story that people suddenly said, now that we've got all of the episodes, we see what a brilliant actor Patrick Troughton was. I would say he's always been a brilliant actor. He's just not my doctor. I like I wasn't surprised that he was such a great actor. So when I saw that story, I was like, yeah, he's great. Still not my favorite doctor. <laughs> Which <laughs> like, I mean, it sounds like a broken record, but there's just, he, like, there's no magic for me in his doctor, which again, his acting, especially in Enemy of the World, 
blows everybody out of the water and is very, very impressive. But for me, he doesn't have that spark. I guess sometimes it just comes down to, does it personally connect with you or not? Right, absolutely. He's your least favorite doctor. He is. There are 12 of them. <laughs> um, but it's not like you're assigning them a rating of 1 to 10 and he's a 1, right? No, 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 of course. There's not, I always say I don't dislike any doctor. You know, I like them all. There's not one that always makes me crazy or that I just don't like his era at all. There's something to be seen in all of them that I love. He's a good doctor, but he's definitely my least favorite. So, Graham, from the Department of Received Fan Wisdom, if you are trying to show people sort of the best side of Troughton, what episode would you recommend that they watch? I think Enemy of the World turned out to be quite a delightful story. For a long time, we thought it was going to be this very, very boring story because there was no monsters in it. And and the one episode that remained was kind of creaky. But when you actually watch the whole thing, you suddenly realize that it's really exciting and really quite delightful. Um, there's a couple of others. The War Games is, is also fantastic. It's massive. It's epic. It's got it's it's a great sort of fin de siècle. Um I, I think uh, Tomb of the Cybermen is great, although it's got some racist elements that I'm not 100 percent on. But uh, it's it, for in terms of in terms of a, of a classic Cyberman story, it's certainly it's certainly got that going for it. Uh, yeah, there's pretty much anything that's left of Patrick Troughton. You know, there's always something enjoyable in it. I think um, you know even even the lesser efforts like the Crotons or something like that have got have got a couple of charming moments in it. Well, Shannon, thank you very much for putting yourself out there as a victim of received fan wisdom. Um, Graham, thank you for explaining that. And remember, everybody, that just because it's received fan wisdom doesn't mean it's right. (laughs) Well... Next week, we'll be reviewing The Lie of the Land by Toby Whithouse. If you like what we're doing on This Week in Time Travel, please subscribe and also share on social media. You can also directly support us and other shows you choose on the Incomparable Network by becoming a member. You can sign up for a monthly or annual pledge to support This Week in Time Travel directly. Just go to theincomparable.com slash members to sign up. You'll then be asked to pick the shows on the network you'd like to support. If you just check the box for This Week in Time Travel, your entire contribution will come to us after a few fees are taken out. If you listen to other podcasts on the Incomparable Network, you can also check their boxes and your contribution will be shared equally. As a thank you for supporting us in the network, members receive extras, including exclusive bonus audio and a live bootleg feed of The Incomparable, as well as a members-only Slack group. And during pledge season, many Incomparable shows, like ours, will be posting bonus episodes just for members. If you'd like to support us, go to theincomparable.com members to sign up. And thanks! You can find us at thisweekintimetravel.com and on Twitter at drwhothisweek. My Twitter ID is Two Minute Time Lord. That's a numeral, not a name. And you can find Alyssa on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. Yeah, and Facebook too. Hey, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on This Week in Time Travel. Bye bye.
remember, everybody, that just because it's received fan wisdom doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> <laughs> well. I love it. I I'll just... have a note to end on. See also the end of time, part one and two. You're going to keep Hooray! banging this damn drum forever. I will also bang that drum. I knew uh, I liked allies. you. I can't even be mad. He needs allies. I, I here, built that I'm drum, here. my friend. I built that drum. Um, anyway. <laughs> I think it's I, so. It's the three of us that are running the, this whole drum circle. Then it's just the three yeah, of us. yeah, yeah, pretty much. 